Welcome to the Old Pass Podcast. My name is Benjamin Hicks, and I'm joined today by uh, my brothers Cody Justice and Michael Spangler. How are you doing today, Cody? Doing well. It was my day off today, so I was thankful for that. Got a lot of errands done. Thankful to be here. Wonderful. How about yourself, Michael? I'm doing well. The Lord is good. How are you, Benjamin? Yeah, a lot to be thankful up here in, in uh, London, and uh, thankful to be getting into this topic. Um, you know, uh, I think that uh, really I'm the one who's most benefiting from this whole uh, project. I think because, as I said, this is my favorite book, and I get to sit down with two of my of my dear brothers in the Lord and work through my favorite book together. So I'm glad that I've been able to uh, scam you both into taking some time out of your evening, and hopefully. There will also be uh, some benefit from those who are listening in as as we do uh, work through a really wonderful portion of the Marrow Theology by William Ames. And we're continue, continuing to consider the doctrine of faith in particular. Um, now, you'll remember last time, listeners, we were considering the um, really the seat of faith. So... Um, whether faith is something that uh, resides within the will or the affections only, or whether it also involves the intellect. And we, we saw that um, there's a tension within Ames' own thought here, uh, that while he wants to say it's only residing in the will, that in fact, um, that there's many cases in which he brings the intellect along. And I thought that was, that was a useful discussion, just being able to think through some of those things. And I uh, I would just quickly re refer you to a parallel chapter that takes place later on in this work. So you'll remember that the, the, the um, Mirror of Theology is uh, divided in these two books, essentially. The first one dealing with our faith in God, the other half uh, dealing with our observance to God. And uh, there are two chapters that dis distinctly refer to faith, one under... Um, under faith itself as that which receives salvation from the Lord, but also uh, considering the same uh, grace or act on our part as it is an act of obedience to God. And I just want to um, just briefly read from point 12 as it's in uh, book two, chapter five. So this is, uh, we're skipping ahead just very briefly to book two, chapter five and point um, 11 and 12. And I think in some ways this kind of brings together all that we discussed last time just as a way of refreshment for ourselves. So faith is the virtue by which clinging to the faithfulness of God, we lean upon him so that we may obtain what he gives to us. John 3 verse 33, he who receives his testimony has sealed that God is true. John 1 verse 12, as many as received him believed in his name. These five things belong together in divine faith. One, a knowledge of what God testifies to. Two, a pious affection toward God, which gives his testimony greatest force with us. Three, an assent given to the truth testified to because of this affection toward God, who is the witness of it. Four, a resting upon God, or the receiving of what is given, and five, the choosing or apprehension of what is made available to us in the testimony. goes on to say the first of these, so a knowledge of what God testifies to, is in the understanding, but it does not produce faith because it is common to us with unbelievers, heretics, apostates, and the devils themselves. The second, fourth, and fifth are in the will and produce faith, as the force within an act of religion. The third is in the understanding, that is um, an assent given to the truth testified to. So the third is in the understanding, but but only as it is moved by the will. It does not have the virtue of faith, but is rather an effect of it. So uh, it's interesting. That I think this tension just sort of continues throughout, where on the one hand, he's wanting to say that it's only within the will. And on, on the other hand, as he breaks down those five things, which are basically what he'd spoken about in the chapter we discussed last time. He specifically refers to a knowledge which is in the understanding. Um, 
Yeah, any comment on that, Michael? I know a, a number of times you corrected our friend Ames with his pupil, um, Van Maastricht, and uh, you think that he's uh, he's continuing to show that um, that tension in that, what I just read there. Well, I, I think what we showed is that, well, Ames perhaps could have said some things better. It's not that he denied that faith was was in the knowledge as well as in the is in trust. Um, he just wants to emphasize and perhaps his language overemphasizes the fact that faith must have an act of the will to be saving. But if we can agree on that necessity that I, I think most of what he says is very amenable to that and what you read is good. And Cody, any comment on uh, reflecting on what we discussed in the past episode and, and what, I've, what I've just read here? I, enjoy, I enjoyed the last episode. I've got a question that's come to mind. Maybe you will know, maybe not. Is there a contemporary context? Obviously, there would have been with Ames. But is there a contemporary context that he's writing in that maybe is uh, inspiring some of these emphases on the will? that either of you men are aware of? Great question, Cody. And uh, for those of us who've been following, the Michael and I did go through extensively a biography of William Ames and uh, his career, especially as a professor of theology. And I think that um, you're absolutely right, Cody. There, there's a context to this, and that is that there was a very, uh, I would say, spiritually barren, cold, rationalistic um, character to much of the theology in Holland when he began his work. And uh, much of what he's he's seeking to do is really stand opposed to that and say that biblical religion is, is a, a living relationship with the Lord. It is a life lived to God. And so it is it's not, a, it's not simply speculative, but for him, it, he wants theology to be eminently practical, to be working it out itself in in our godliness, and not um, certainly giving the emphasis on holiness to the Arminians or, or to those who would deny the sovereignty of God. So, I think certainly there is a, a polemical context to what he's saying, and the one that remains relevant today. Uh, Michael, did you want to uh, get into that a bit? Yeah, just two quick things that question of what is theology, whether it's a, a theoretical or a practical discipline that goes back into the medieval period. And he insists very plainly that it's practical. And that's inseparable from this question, that faith is an act of the will. It's practical, not merely something you think about. But then also, it's probably because of the influence of Ramism as well which sold itself as a practical philosophy as opposed to a merely intellectual um, wit philosophy, which was how they critiqued the um, medieval Aristotelianism. Yeah, it's very helpful, Michael. Uh, any follow-up to that, Cody? Well, if assuming that what you said, Benjamin, is feeding into or influencing um, aims and his emphasis upon the will, namely that cold rationality. Uh, for myself, I like that because it says Ames is a real man and he's responding to things that are in front of him, which is part of what I believe a pastor should do is what we should do as Christians is, is respond to threats that are before us. So assuming that's true, I would just say I, I, I'm thankful for that. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a great thing. The second thing I want to say, just from you reading um, <clears throat> you know, between point 12 and point 13, or excuse me, point, point 12 and point 15. Uh, so 15 says the third is in understanding, but only as it is moved by the will. What's the third? The third is an assent given to the truth testified to because of this affection toward God, who is the witness of it. So, so I'm not an expert on this, but from what, what I've read and what I've heard, I usually hear men say, you move from intellect to affections to will. 
right? This seems to switch. Is he not switching the two, or am I, have I misunderstood him? The last, the latter two. Yeah, so I think I understand what you're saying. So he is saying that 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 third list, third thing on the list. So he says, first is a knowledge of what God testifies to. Second, a pious affection towards God. That's in the will. Then the third is again in the knowledge. That is assent uh, given to the two testified to because of this affection towards God, who is the witness of it. Um, and uh, I think what he's where he he says that third point. Um, is in the understanding as it is moved by the will. I think that movement of the will, and I, I would stand for correction, but the way I've understood that is that's point two. So the movement of the will is the pious affection for God, which gives uh, his testimony of the grace force with us, as he says. Um, so that, that would be the movement of the will I think he's responding to. So I think what he's wanting to say is that ascent of, of the, of the, um, of the intellect whereby we say this is god's truth and i and i agree with it i assent to it that itself uh entails a prior action of the will whereby we we are uh we have that affection that is pious toward god am i tracking with that accurately you think yeah i think i just i think i misunderstood him so knowledge affection then assent assent arises from the affection which seems to follow in aims the knowledge right okay okay all right so i think that's the yeah i i for myself you know when i was initially kind of thinking through faith in a in a careful way at, at seminary i found that list you know both of these chapters on faith i always just come back to so probably what once every couple months i just kind of work through it and and think through it because um, whether whether or not you parse it everything exactly the way he does, he's basically putting all of the data on the table that you ought to be thinking about when you're thinking of faith and, and giving you a lot of fruitful things to grab hold of there. Um, yeah, so one of the reasons that we're going in a little bit more depth is that if you're going to be working through the uh, marrow theology, as I think our listeners should, you're going to be seeing that the the foundations that are laid here are going to really be affecting every other chapter in this book, especially in book. Um, so there's the overall book, but there's also book one and book two. And then especially in book one, the whole uh, section is about faith. It's not just this, um, this one chapter. And so every doctrine that follows is going to be framed from the, the perspective of faith. And that's at least what he's setting out to do. And um, so there's, there's an extremely practical bent to everything that he's, he's saying here. And uh, especially if, if you're going to be a, a Sunday school teacher or a, uh, a Christian school teacher or going to be leading your family in family worship, or even if you're going to be a minister, um, that is very helpful um, to have all the different doctrines arranged in, in that direct way. At least it is helpful for me because then you're immediately going to be uh, having an angle um that is tending towards actually using that and applying it to your audience. And uh, certainly it will also help you in your own devotional life as well. So for that reason, I wanted to just simply uh, continue on with this uh, chapter and, and look at those things that we still need to discuss, having talked about the relationship of faith and the will and the intellect. I now want to direct our conversation a bit to the object of faith, which really the other dimension to it so those things which are to be believed in what is what is that and um as we're going to see it's uh it's not immediately straightforward right because even if you think about how the bible talks about faith it sometimes is in a number of different relations and i think he helpfully arranges those in a way that we can we can consider carefully um yeah maybe i'll uh i'll Take this over to Michael to kind of get us started. So when you're looking here, Michael, and we're back now in, in book one, chapter three, and I'm thinking particularly of points five and following, what is it that you see in the sections that uh, would be helpful in understanding the object of faith? 
Yes. So seven and eight get into it directly. Seven saying, now God is the object of faith, not as he is considered in himself, but as we live well by him. Now, I admit I'm not completely sure what this means, not as he is considered in himself. But I think perhaps what he's saying is that God being incomprehensible, we don't have some immediate apprehension of him by faith as if the infinite ocean could be poured into our finite soul. But he becomes for us the one by whom we live well, which gets back to his definition of theology, that it's the doctrine of living for God. But to say we have faith in God, of course, does not give the biblical picture. Every Christian knows that we have faith in Christ as well, but that there's a different way. And so he explains in verse eight, Christ as redeemer is the immediate, but not the ultimate object of faith. For we believe through Christ in God. Now, he assumes some basic theology here, which is that on the one hand, Christ is God. He's the second person of the Trinity and has the same infinite nature as the Father and the Holy Spirit. So in that sense, Christ is the ultimate object of our faith together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. God is the one we finally aim at in all of our believing and is the one we conclude in he's the aim of our whole life and of our faith but then there's when we consider christ not just according to his divine nature but by his two natures as the mediator as the one appointed by god to stand between us and god and it's in that sense christ says no man comes to the father but by me and so we have to use Christ as he presents himself, as the gate, as the door, as the way to the Father, as the Son of Man upon whom the angels are descending and ascending. And so what every believer, we can only ascend to heaven through that ladder that God has built for us, so to speak, in the person of the mediator. But it's important to realize that Christ is only mediate. Our faith in Christ as the mediator is, an, is a means through which we believe in God. So Christ himself says this in the upper room, ye believe in God, believe also in me. There's a emphasis on believing in God, but he says, I'm the one to take you there. And then he says a bit later, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We don't separate the two, but it is useful how he divides it between the immediate object and the ultimate object. Very helpful, Michael. And um, yeah, I for myself, right, the way that really opened up many portions of, of scripture was this, that I came to see that uh, faith is spoken of in many different contexts in the Bible. And even where it's not expressly stated, often it is the implicit point that the, these things are to be used and uh, that are in the scripture to uh, either buttress or, or grant us faith. And, um, and so wherever one of those two objects of faith is particularly emphasized, whether Christ the mediator or God, the ultimate uh, ground of our faith, um, wherever one of those is particularly emphasized, the other is not absent, right? And so sometimes we um, we begin to ask questions like, how do we preach the Old Testament uh, Christologically, or preach the Old Testament in a way that does justice to the fact that it is it is all about faith in Christ? And one of the things that um, that I began to consider from also reflecting upon Ames, but also studying the Scriptures more more deeply, is that where uh, where God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our, our triune Jehovah, is set forth in his saving power or in his saving works, that itself is, is the gospel, that itself is set forth for, uh, for our trust and for our faith. 
um, and that is not separate from the, the faith in Christ meteor because they're all wherever one is present, the other is, is implied, right? And for for me, that liberated me from trying to find, we'd say maybe more tangential ways of of um, finding Christ as mediator present in the text, because really I, I came to see that where where you're trusting in God truly, truly, right, then that is. The, the faith in the mediator is also present. And likewise, if you're dealing with a very text where the, the personal work of Christ is very foregrounded, um, you, you ought never to divorce that from the, from the God uh, who is ordaining everything. So that was myself for myself, how, how that uh, became helpful in thinking through the scriptures. Cody, uh, any, uh, any thoughts on, on what Michael has said or what I've said? Well, the way I'll say the way that Michael parsed through that was clarifying for me. I had some questions about that and he certainly answered, answered them. I had questions about the last clause there, point seven, but as we live well by him and um, Michael referenced, well, you got to go back to how he's defined theology, which is the doctrine of living well unto God. And it's like, oh yes, I've already forgotten that from two chapters ago. So I appreciate that reminder. Um, I, I think too, Christ as mediator, he has to work to bring us to himself. He's working by his, his Holy spirit. Uh, so I think, I mean, that's, that's necessary to, to keep in mind as well. And if I remember right, Ames does say this somewhere. I'm looking for it here on the, um, the last part of this chapter. I can't remember where, where I read it, but, <clears throat> oh yes, 12.12. 12. And the final dependence of faith toward the bottom, the final dependence of faith as it designates the act of believing is on the operation and inner persuasion of the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 12.3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So God gives to us faith to bring us to himself through Christ. That's what, that's what he's doing. Um, so just as, as you're talking through point eight, that was just a thought that had come to mind. Yeah, that that's, that's very helpful, Cody. And um, just uh, remind me of something I, I, I wish to say, which is that um, exactly what he means by the, the knowledge of God, as we, we live well by him, right? That that is, the sense in which we're, we're speaking that will come become much more clear once we get into chapter four where he speaks of god in his essence um and there i think you'll have opportunity to see what what he's saying and not saying and certainly we would not want to um imply that the, the knowledge of faith is in any way um it brings us to a different god right but as as michael intimated it's important to to see um, the revelation of God in, in connection with his incomprehensibility. And that's going to be the emphasis that we're going to see in chapter four. Um, yeah, maybe um, I'll, I'll make this, uh, I'd like to put this for, put this forward for discussion because I'm not entirely sure of, of how to answer this, but I'd like to uh, back up uh, at this point and just ask a question that maybe some of our listeners will be familiar with if they followed some of the discussion about apologetics in the uh, in the recent years, where you have in the reform camp those people who would uh, emphasize what they call a presuppositional approach, right? Where um, there is a certainly a reticence to speak about natural um, revelation, natural theology, and evidences as uh, supports for faith. Um, on the other hand, you would have maybe what we call classical apologetics, which al allows for um, aspects of revelation, we'll say outside the scripture as, as support for them. And uh, what you find is that uh, Ames doesn't 
really speak much of the, much about that in particular. Um, however, I think that there, there are certain things that are that are sort of interwoven throughout all of his approach, right? But I think you're going to see he is very much a uh, in the classical reformed approach, both for his theology as well as for his um, his form of uh, even doing apologetics, if you wish to call it that. Um, but I want to especially zero in on point six here. Um, actually, I'll back up and, and start with, with point five and then weed into point six. True Christian faith, which has a place in the understanding, always leans upon divine testimony as far as it is divine, but it cannot be received without genuine turning of the will towards God. And then he uses some scripture references. Then point six, uh, faith is is not more uncertain and doubtful because it leans on testimony alone, but rather more certain than any human knowledge because of its nature. This is so because it is brought to its object on the formal basis of infallibility, yet because of imperfection in the inclination from which faith flows, the ascent of faith often appears weaker than this or that person uh, than the ascent of knowledge. Um, now, he's, he's saying a number of things there, but the, the thing I'd like to ask you about, Michael, um, if you have any thought on this, would be where it says faith is not more uncertain or doubtful because it leans on divine testimony alone. So would one be correct in saying that he is implying there that there's no place for natural theology as far as, as divine testimony um, being the sole ground of faith? Well, that's a good question. There are a lot of things going on here. I don't know if I can speak to them all, but maybe I can say something helpful. There are two types of certainty. One is, we call it a moral certainty based on natural reasons. So we have a moral certainty that in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. We have good reasons to believe it. Or to use something strictly natural and not based on testimony at all, I, I'm certain that the sky outside is dark. Um, that's different than the certainty of faith. Faith receives God's word as infallible and believes it with a certainty that excels all moral certainty. Things are lifted beyond the realm of controversy. We could have an argument about whether what and whether Columbus did. Or perhaps you could question my interpretation of the sky. But when God speaks, creatures shut their mouths. And faith simply receives what God says. So I think that's what he's getting at. Now, what complicates it is that in faith, there's what we call mixed articles. In theology, I should say, there are articles that are mixed, meaning that they're taught in scripture, but they're also taught by nature and by reason. For example, God's existence or God's attributes, which I'm convinced can all be proven naturally. And Paul implies as much when he says in Romans 20 that God's eternal power and Godhead are clearly perceived from the things that have been made. So, we have to distinguish then what kind of arguments we're making and what they do. Rational arguments can bring us a rational or moral certainty, and that can be a great help to us in matters of faith. But we do not rest our faith upon human rational arguments or moral certainty. It's used as a help to us. Every Christian knows this. Why do you believe that God exists. Well, the Bible tells me so, and that's that's the right reason to rest your faith on. But when you go outside and see God's creation, aren't you confirmed in your faith that God's exists? God exists, and using your mind to reason from those things outside, you can you can derive very powerful confirmation that what the Bible says is true. Not that we doubt the Bible or we need nature to prove it, but we're glad for all the help we can get to strengthen our faith. It's also very helpful for shutting the mouths of unbelievers, especially unbelievers like atheists who refuse to even open the scriptures. 
or unbelievers like pagans in foreign countries who've never even heard the gospel, didn't, don't even have Bibles. We have something to say to them too. Natural theology is a great help in that you see Paul exercising natural theology in um, Lystra in Acts 14 and with the Athenians in Acts 17 in that way. But they're never telling a man to put his faith in a process of reasoning. Reason has its place, but it's subordinate in matters of faith. We need, if we come to God, to believe his word. And if you have anything short of that, you might have what we call an historical faith, but you don't have saving faith. That's, that's helpful, Michael. And it, it does echo what, what I read at the beginning, where that uh, there is a sort of historical knowledge which is common both to heretics and to devils, right? Um, yeah, and I and and to my my own thinking, uh, a lot of the discussions that have been happening uh, in the 20th century and now the 21st century that uh, reform men have engaged in, uh, it it may uh, be more fruitful for both sides if you have strong convictions about apologetics or or philosophy to engage more with our reform fathers on the subject, because um, I, I've uh, heard articulations of, of both sides of the equation as far as um, those who would be um, arguing simply for using the scriptures in our apologetics and those who would um, who would really be laying the the scriptures alongside other evidences as a sort of parody. And I think both have, have a, a lot of dangers in them. Whereas someone like Ames and the other reformed scholastics, especially uh, Turretin, to my thinking, in his uh, first volume on the subject, really what you what you have there is is a wonderful balance and uh, a, a proper defining of what exactly he means um, by by the use of evidence and the use of natural theology and and as Michael says, right, the understanding that there's multiple uses of these things, the the use of um, shutting the mouth of of unbelief, right is glorifying to God and, and not to be despised, while also recognizing that ultimately nature as nature doesn't know anything of Christ the mediator. And uh, yeah, and so in, in that sense, uh, the scriptures are the only thing that can grant divine faith that is saving. Um, yeah, Cody, were you tracking with that? Or are you going to denounce me as, uh, as I don't, I didn't actually ask you before the episode, what school you fall into, so I may have, uh, 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 <laughs> neither is neither an answer. <laughs> I, uh, I'll be, I'll Not be forever, Cody. <laughs> I'll be honest, brethren. I think that, um, apologetics from what I've seen sidelines, a lot of men and, um, they get obsessed with it and it becomes unprofitable. And I've, I've noted men that have apostatized who were very obsessive over that particular uh, branch, if you want to call it a branch of theology. Um, so I think that there is such a thing as natural revelation and natural theology, and we can appeal to fellow men just like Paul does, like Michael referenced in Acts. Uh, and he's even, Paul is even, I mean, as far as I understand, he's quoting from Epimenides there in Titus chapter one, Christians are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. You know, presumably, let's say that man isn't even saved, but at least he can he can see and say, okay, these, these people are breaking the law. So even if you say, well, we need to stick to scripture, well, what is scripture holding forth? It's it's holding forth that you can do this. <clears throat> but obviously, yeah, you have to use scripture if you're going to bring men to Christ. Um, you have to use special revelation. So to me, I think much like it seemed like um, Michael was saying, they're just, they're tools and you have to know the purposes. You, you know, you don't use a hammer to saw wood. So you just have to understand, okay, what is this thing? What is this nature? What is this for? And then proceed accordingly. But uh, I will also confess my ignorance on that whole debate. I've not read a whole lot. And I know that there have been probably thousands of pages spilled. And for me personally, I don't, <laughs> it's not something I really want to get into other than, I agree with you. I think that our, our fathers probably pre 20th century are 
to me, I find much more use in them than those 20th century and after. I, I think you're going to have to say pre 18th century to be safe there, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. Fair enough. Very good. We want to make sure that we don't let the 18th century off the hook either. So people don't think that we're, we're going uh, loose on them here. Um, yeah, very good, brothers. Thank you for that discussion. I hope it wasn't too much of a tangent, but uh, if, if people are thinking along those lines, maybe, maybe that, that those comments will be helpful to them. Um, yeah, and so uh, to bring those these two threads to um, to a unity, we've spoken about the the two objects of faith as uh, God ultimately, but also Christ as the media object, and I introduced the the point that uh, it is divine testimony that uh, sets those those objects of faith forth and um, that is uh, explained in particular in point nine uh, maybe I'll ask Cody do you want to read point nine for us and uh, maybe just offer your thoughts on it to get us started with with a discussion about that yeah point nine says the declarations in the scriptures or promises contain and exhibit the object of faith, which he's already said is God. The declarations themselves are called the object of faith by metonymy of the adjective, in the sense that the good to be attained is the end and effect of faith, but not properly the object itself. The true object of faith is the one upon whose strength we lean in pursuing the good. Uh, he's got First Corinthians two, First Corinthians one twenty three, and then chapter two, verse two, put together. We preach Christ. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians five nineteen. God was Christ. So he sets out the object of faith being God in point seven, and now it appears to me. You, brethren, can correct me if I'm wrong. Here in point nine, he's saying whatever scripture says, its declarations, its promises, its revelations, um, those are not properly the object of faith, but they do contain, as he says, contain and exhibit the object of, of faith. And then when he says they are, so these declarations and promises are... Uh, called the object of faith by metonymy of the adjunct i had to do some searching to make sure i understood precisely what these words meant it, it i think that he means where x is referred to by y um which is closely associated with x so for example give me a hand is a substitution for let me some help or give me some assistance or lend me your ears substitute for listen to what I have to say. So it seems to me Ames is saying the promises and declarations of scripture are holding forth God, but they're not the primary object of your faith. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I think that's a good, a good summary myself. So yeah, the, some of those uh, technical descriptions, right. Uh, metonymy of the adjunct, right. Um, the, those can seem a, a bit overwhelming at first, but it is worth it, I think, getting out your dictionary and looking at it because uh, he'll, he'll be using them periodically and sometimes it will help you precisely think. So yeah, the, I think that the point is that um, what he's saying there is that by divine ordinance, by divine will and purpose, God, um, God reveals himself by this means, right? So he discloses uh, his his perfection as God is the ground of our faith, and Christ is the sufficient mediator through the the promises of Scripture, through the, those things in 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 Scripture that set forth Christ and and God as as the object of faith. And so the uh, this isn't uh, you know obviously this almost should go without saying it's not an accident it's not as though there was some other uh, purpose for scripture and this is um, something ancillary to it. 
but this this is God's purpose for the scriptures. So all of scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for correction, for instruction and in righteousness and so forth. Uh, so where whatever um, the human author is doing in a particular uh, book of, of the Bible, always behind it is divine intention and divine purpose to, to speak a word to his people in all times and rightly handled uh, according to God's God's intention. It, it fulfills that purpose in his elect. Um, to put some things together, I, I suppose. Michael, is, uh, or, or do you think that Cody and I are on the right track? Um, or at least Cody is, I hope. Oh, yes. And I wanted to share one example that I think would help illustrate. So we ought to live by the promises of God, and we ought to apply them to our various needs. One promise that's been very precious to me, and my great weakness is Isaiah 40. 31, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount it with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. I think the first line of that emphasizes exactly what he's saying. When I come to a promise, the promise is not the object of my faith, properly speaking. I can speak that way, but what I really mean is the, the promise presents to me the object of my faith. And it especially does so under the idea of a benefit. So in that verse, it's strength. I need God's strength. And I come to him for it, and I believe his promise. But in that promise, I'm believing him. And my aim, my ultimate aim and goal is not the benefit. It's the benefiter. It's God. And so He, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Properly, we don't wait upon strength. We await upon the Lord for strength that he has promised. Yeah, that's, that's hugely helpful, Michael. And I think that is, to, to put some, some things together, that is one of the distinguishing features of historical faith from saving faith, right? So anyone, you could have a, a liberal um, heretic or you could have um, a full atheist, right? The propositions of scripture may in a sense be be grasped however poorly and um yeah and and, and that's not really what we're, we're speaking about what we're speaking about is what the the lord says to um abraham in genesis 15 verse 1 fear not abram i am thy shield and exceeding great reward right so he doesn't say, fear not, Abraham, I'm going to provide you with some protection. I'm going to provide you with some, some blessings. No, he says he himself is the shield of protection. He himself is the reward of blessing. And um, I think that you, you, can, you can see how theology bec becomes distorted, right, wherever it gets off that track. And really, it's such a prominent rest throughout all scripture we have no excuse for for neglecting that but the reality is that any tradition any church any any professing christian can can um can get off target there i mean i would never de denigrate sound doctrine I, I love sound doctrine would never denigrate sound teaching in in the original languages and and uh utilizing the reformed confessions and and the works of our fathers but all of it can become uh, idolatrous if it, it, it doesn't have that as its um, as its ultimate end point, right? If these things are not carrying you to the point where you're resting upon God Himself, right? Then, then to that extent, it's, it's doing us no good and probably is, is making us um, uh, far, far worse. If if even those things are are not leading us to the Lord, it's leading us further away from Him. So we have to just be cautious about that for our own uh, our own souls and our own well-being yeah i think of i think of romans what does paul say about the jews what advantage hath the jew to them were entrusted the oracles of god later he says you know they had the fathers the adoption the covenants they had the service so you know, they had all these things which were meant to bring them bring them to god and we're holding forth god they're holding forth christ um 
know, the scripture that Jesus, Jesus, when he speaks, he says, what does it profit a man if he, if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or we could say, you know, what does it profit a man if he has the scripture, if he has the sacraments, if he has the Psalms and doesn't have faith and the object thereof? There is, there is not a profit. Uh, in fact, it's greater, it's just greater condemnation. Yes, that's that's very helpful, Cody. So, so brothers, I wonder. Um, uh, that's I think we've largely covered the the scope of it. I know I was thankful that Cody referenced the concluding remarks there in point twelve about how the Holy Spirit is the author of this because that that cannot be neglected, right? And I think what we're going to see, especially as we progress on in, in different chapters, is that Ames does have a, a very strong emphasis on the grace of God through the Holy Spirit and granting all, all the different graces, but the faith especially. And um, yeah, I think that that's, that's what really um, yeah, separates Christianity from every, every humanistic um, facsimile, right? that, it is, that it is utter dependence on every point on the Lord to grant us anything that we possess. But um, yeah, I was thankful that you brought that out, Cody. Wonder, was anything else about this chapter, brothers? So I, I was especially focusing on points five to twelve. But if uh, just the general uh, chapter itself, anything we hadn't touched on last last week, especially caught your eye, I wanted to give you the opportunity to discuss it. But I felt those things were the were the main thoughts, really the the seat of faith and the will and and the intellect as well as well as the object of faith. So any uh, thoughts, brothers, as we include this chapter. Seeing Michael shaking his head. How about yourself, Cody? I'll just say rereading it. I appreciated his emphasis in 13. Um, faith is true and proper trust. It goes on to say, which is the choice and appropriation. I think by that he means claiming of a good and sufficient means for such confidence. And you're reading from, from book two, says that um, down page 241.12, sub point five, the choosing or apprehension, which follows the resting. Um, I, I just appreciate the, I guess maybe the duality of that, that we there is a resting involved in faith but there's also there's also a choosing so the lord is holding forth something for us to take for ourselves and he wants us to do that that's part of that's part of what faith does so i just say I, i'm thankful for that i'm thankful aim stresses that and i just give a hearty amen to it amen, yeah and if i may note in that same paragraph i think it's really useful and it's a feature of the puritan doctrine of salvation that faith does not require assurance. Faith should grow up into assurance in us, but assurance is, besides being a matter of faith, also a matter of sense. We have to perceive the evidences of true saving grace in our lives. And so notice what he says. It's not to have perfect confidence that all things will turn out well in the end. A Christian ought to know that, but sometimes in God's providence, he doesn't. But that doesn't mean the Christian doesn't have Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, even if you don't enjoy the comfortable fruits of that faith. That promise is still true. That's a wonderful point to end on, Michael. And um, yeah, I think that for for myself, I think that the, the reward of reading the Puritans is precisely that. They were doctors of souls and uh, they they knew how to properly distinguish different um, different children of, of the Lord in different seasons of life even. And um, yeah, if, if one were to think that the only saving faith is that faith which is strong and assured of your own 
justification and election without uh, weakness and, and doubt, then uh, that that would lead to a lot of problems. And I think that as we go further on this uh, in this work, we're going to see that while indeed that is the um, that which every Christian uh, can attain to by God's grace and uh, should aspire to attain to, that in, indeed there it's it's not in God's uh, purpose, nor is it appropriate with the with the tenor of the covenant of grace that 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 always be present, particularly where there is 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 weakness and uh, and uh, defects in our faith. So I think that that is helpful because it's the object of faith, uh, Christ the mediator, and God Himself who saves, and not the strength of faith itself. Very good, brothers. Well, I've appreciated this discussion very much, and I'm very excited to look at the next chapter next time, uh, God and His Essence. A lot of wonderful material, and um, I'm going to aspire to uh, try to get through that in one episode, because even though I thought this was fruitful, um, I, I think we want to keep it going at a good clip. So we will try, listeners, going forward to have one episode per chapter. Um, and um, yeah, I hope that this episode was a blessing to you listeners. Please do contact us. You can uh, reach out to me uh, through benjamin.g.hicks at gmail.com. And I'll leave that email in the inbox. And uh, yeah, please let us know what you appreciate, what maybe you'd like to see improved, or um, other topics that you'd like to see discussed, because we do plan to discuss other topics outside of our regular series on William Ames. So until next time, God bless you all. and. Uh, let us be seeking the Lord every day.